In a previous Jones Day Talks podcast, we discussed developments and trends in private antitrust enforcement actions across Europe. For today's program, we're nearing our focus on private antitrust enforcement in Germany, with particular attention to how it has changed in recent years and the unique complexities involved. Jones Day partners Dr. Jürgen Beninka and Dr. Dieter Strubenhoff are here to talk about what potentially affected parties need to know now. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Dr. Jürgen Beninka counsels European and U.S. corporate clients on antitrust regulatory compliance and represents businesses before cartel authorities, including the German Federal Cartel Office and the European Commission, and before courts in antitrust matters. And Dr. Dieter Strubenhoff litigates and arbitrates on behalf of clients in matters related to corporate and commercial disputes in both national and international settings. He advises and represents clients in domestic and international arbitration proceedings with a focus on mediation. Both Jürgen and Dieter are based in the firm's Frankfurt office. Jürgen, Dieter, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I think it's going to be a very, very interesting program today. Let's jump right in. Jürgen, in an earlier podcast, we talked about private enforcement of competition laws at a very high level across the EU. Today, we're focusing specifically on enforcement in Germany. We've all heard about the damages cartels can inflict on businesses and consumers. With all this in mind, talk about enforcement in Germany and how that has changed in recent years. Happy to do so. Traditionally, German courts and the German Bundeskartellamt, the German Federal Cartel Office, believed that it should be up to the private and public enforcement by the Bundeskartellamt, the German Federal Cartel Office, to ensure that the antitrust laws are complied with. Mm-hmm. People actually believed that the antitrust laws only protect the market as a concept and not customers or suppliers. Okay. That has definitely changed in the early 2000s after a number of groundbreaking decisions by the European Court of Justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the first cases picked up in the early 2000s and uh, today, however, one can say that raising antitrust damages claims is the rule, rather the exception after it has become known that a cartel has taken place. The Bundeskartellamt traces all of the cases that are being filed in court. Mm-hmm. It states that from its perspective, almost every cartel leads to a significant amount of additional follow-on litigation on top, the Bundeskartellamt highlights mm-hmm. the fact that many claims are settled outside court. I see. What led to this change in attitude here? You mentioned there were some, some decisions, some court decisions that came about. It seems like it was almost a 180-degree turn in the attitude about this in terms of private litigation versus you know the, the public enforcement, as it were. What do you think happened? That's correct. The game changer were two decisions issued by the European Court of Justice in the Courage and in the Manfredi matters in which the European Court has held that everybody who is a victim of a violation of the EU antitrust cartel prohibition is entitled to damages. And once that has been settled for the EU European law, it was clear that the different situation in Germany was untenable. And as a result, first the German courts and then the German legislative made clear that also a violation of the German antitrust prohibition, of the German cartel prohibition, entitled the victim to damages. 
All right, so there, there's some background. We, we laid some groundwork here for the rest of this conversation. Let's go over to Dieter for a second. Dieter, let's say maybe I think I have a claim, an antitrust, anti-competition kind of claim, and I want to go after this as a private action. What kinds of factors should claimants consider when they're getting ready to file an action for damages in Germany? Yes, I think the first action that needs to be analyzed is what type of case this really is. Is this a follow-on case or is this a standalone damage claim? Mm -hmm. A standalone damage claim would mean that the claimant would have to provide full evidence for all prerequisites of the claim. And that would include in particular also the evidence for the infringement of competition law itself. Mm-hmm. which is a very difficult effect to establish even for cartel authorities. And that's one of the reasons why the cartel authorities also involve these leniency programs to mm-hmm. establish this fact. In a follow-on action, we have a legal framework which creates a legally binding effect for the follow-on damage action, which means that the claimant would not have to provide evidence for the infringing act, for the competition law infringement as such anymore, and that makes it um, uh, far easier. And that has the consequence that uh, almost all of the uh, cartel damage claims we see in the courts today are follow-on actions. Follow-ons, okay. And no standalone actions. Then the next very important uh, junction to take when structuring a claim is the issue of forum selection. These claims are by nature international, and that means they provide often a opportunity to choose between different possible courts where an action could be submitted. Uh And that means not only different courts in a given country like Germany, but also internationally within the European Union, for example. And so it is an important analysis to be done, which would be the most suitable jurisdiction for the given case. That that sounds interesting. Is that more art than science, form selection? I mean, after a while, you must know where your chances might be better, if I can be very blunt in saying that. Are, are, are some forms just kind of known, man, maybe this is where we ought to take it, or are they all, they're not all the same, certainly? Yes, the factors, the advantages of one jurisdiction or the disadvantages of another jurisdiction in terms of litigation procedures and certain aspects of evidence rules. Uh, They do not change in these jurisdictions fast, but every case is different in the sense that the underlying facts are different. Different claimants, different respondents, which have a big impact on the following selection and the locations where the center of damage, let's say, Mm -hmm. also plays an important role in this analysis. That leads to another aspect which needs to be looked at at the outset of a case, which means which is the selection of the proper respondent for such cartel damage action. A cartel, by definition, has several members, and each of these members is a potential respondent in these proceedings. Under German law, the cartel members, they are liable jointly and severally, Mm-hmm. And that means each of the cartel members is in principle liable for the whole cartel damage. And 
Therefore, you um, have another choice to be done here, which means the choice of the right respondent for your case. You may decide to sue one catalyst or you may decide to sue several or all catalysts. On the other hand, also on the on the claimant side, uh, there are choices to be done. We have not yet instruments in Germany which are very similar to US-style class actions, mm -hmm. but also in Germany we have seen more sophisticated approaches to cartel damage litigation in the past, and that means various damages claims are being pooled through different structures, in particular through assignment structures, and there is also a use of special litigation vehicles. And uh, this is, of course, an aspect how to structure the claimant's uh, party sure. in these proceedings. So you see there are a lot of choices to be uh, taken before actually initiating proceedings. Absolutely. And I, I knew it was going to be complicated, but there are a lot of factors to consider before moving forward. Obviously, Jürgen, if the matter does move to court, how do those proceedings play out? What should we expect to see? Let me give you an outline of the procedure. Mm -hmm. Once the plaintiff has made up its decision and has decided to go to court, it will prepare the complaint. It's, this is a kind of formal letter to the court structured in a kind of prayer for relief mm -hmm. and then the reasoning for the jurisdiction of the court as well as the reasoning for the merits of the case. The court takes note of the complaint, decides on the amount of statutory court fees that have to be paid in advance by the plaintiff. Once these statutory court fees have been paid by the plaintiff, the complaint is served mm -hmm. on the defendant or respondent, and the defendant then gets normally two deadlines, one deadline, short deadline to notify the court that, that it intends to defend itself against the complaint mm -hmm. and a second deadline to respond to the allegations made in the complaint. The latter deadline can be extended, uh, the first one cannot, but that's normally the big picture. And once the defendant has submitted its answer to the complaint, the plaintiff then gets a chance to respond to that answer to the complaint and then the defendant again normally gets a chance to raise again his view and then at that point in time it, it's kind of customary that the court will issue either a kind of indicative court order identifying the legal issues to be clarified and the factual issues as well mm -hmm. or it even it may arrange even already at that time for a first oral hearing. I see, I see. So again a lot of moving parts. You mentioned an oral hearing and that would come about at some point. Dieter, explain what happens there at the oral hearing stage. As Jürgen already indicated, litigation proceedings in Germany are very driven by written proceedings, and most of the work being done in litigation is done through submissions. Mm -hmm. That means that the oral hearings are reasonably short. Mm -hmm. Normally, you would only see court hearings to be scheduled for a couple of hours not days, as in other jurisdictions. Sure. And uh, what the court actually does then is to provide the parties with a preliminary assessment and view of its analysis of the case, facts, and legally so far. 
So the court, unlike in other jurisdictions, takes a very active role in the proceedings and is often also quite open in expressing its views on the case mm-hmm. without uh, having to fear, for example, bias, emotions in this regard. Since these cases are extremely complex in cartel litigation, there are also a lot of issues to address, and therefore the first oral hearing may not touch on all the relevant aspects of the matter. It is common that first procedural issues are discussed if they are relevant, such as jurisdiction or assignment issues, also substantive law issues like applicable law matters, and often in many cases also limitation period issues are relevant. And only then it gets really interesting in terms of damage calculation and scope of damages, and the court may uh, may then discuss issues relevant to the taking of evidence for these damages. After going through all this, when we get to the decision point, well, you're, let's talk about how decisions are announced. In, in some of the notes you were kind enough to send over to me to prepare for this program, you talked about incentives for defendants to settle at some point. Talk about how all this works in context of when the decision comes out, why someone might settle, and so forth. I'm happy to do so. You know, of course, at some point in time, the court will have made up its mind on whether or not the complaint or the plaintiff has met its burden of proof and whether or not, indeed, there has been a damage and in which amount. And then, of course, the court will issue at some point a decision. However, as you correctly mentioned, in such case, if the defendant feels that it is likely to lose this case, and in particular, if the defendant is facing similar parallel claims from other plaintiffs in other courts in the same jurisdictions, it will often have an incentive to avoid a public decision, Mm -hmm. a publicly available decision in which its liability has been determined, and more important, in which the amount of damage that the plaintiff in this particular case has suffered will become known publicly. And and because any such precedent is likely to be used by the other parallel plaintiffs in the parallel proceedings, and as a result, it's often advisable for a defendant in such situation to avoid the negative publicity of a negative decision and to settle that to avoid that and the defendant will therefore have strong incentives to settle to avoid the publicity of a negative decision. What, if you had to guess, what percentage of these cases settle before a decision comes out? Let's put it this way. In most cases, we don't see any negative decisions. So any kind of mass litigation cases in which it is known that a significant number of plaintiffs have filed parallel claims, like in the German cement case, in the German sugar cartel case, in the German cases relating to the trucks cartel, in all of these cases we only see negative decisions, i.e. decisions in which the plaintiffs lose. Mm -hmm. We do not see positive decisions and unfortunately we cannot make up the math to determine what kind of ratio the negative decisions have and as a result it's it's very difficult to guess. Sure. as I said, the mere fact that we do not see negative decisions in these mass litigation cases 
makes it pretty likely that cases are being settled. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's I, substantial amounts. Sure, sure. And it's, it's certainly understandable. That, that's for certain. Okay, Dieter, we've talked about and outlined the process. How long does a typical cartel damage case, anti-competitive case, usually take? Well, these are very complex cases, and as you would expect for complex cases, they take a long time. This long duration may mean that they can stretch out from a few to many years, and it's very difficult to make any particular predictions for a particular case. It can actually vary quite a lot. Okay. There are some cases, and we have seen this here in Germany also quite recently, which are being dismissed on purely legal grounds, such as the, as the assignments, which are the basis for the claims have been held invalid by the court, and then okay. uh, the court was able to dismiss the entire case based on this legal finding. That can be reasonably fast, then, after the first rounds of submissions and uh, maybe one or two court hearings. Mm-hmm. But if the case goes through the whole agenda of legal prerequisites and the necessary evidence for damage calculation and evidence taking in this regard, it may actually take many years. Well. And you have to bear in mind that this is an ongoing legal development, which also adds legal complexity and therefore duration to the proceedings. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, you have to bear in mind the instances possible for litigation proceedings in Germany. That means after the first instance judgment, there is one appeal possible to sure. the second level civil court, which takes at least further two years in these cases. Oh. And then there is subject to further requirements even a second appeal to the federal court in Germany, uh, which can then take more years. And in fact, it is even possible that the court comes back from the federal court to the lower instances for further evidence taking. So if this is really played out through the whole procedure, it can take many, many years. Okay. Okay. I guess uh, as complex as these matters are, I guess I'm not shocked to hear that. And moving back to Jürgen, I probably wouldn't also be surprised that in terms of the cost of this type of litigation, that probably varies a lot too. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. Dieter highlighted already the complexity and the length of the proceedings. And uh, also, let me give you a couple of examples which in our experience have led to significant costs in bringing the case even up to the court of first instance. And that is in particular, you know, working with the necessary evidence to prove that the plaintiff has purchased the goods affected by the cartel. In this particular circumstance, the plaintiff needs to show and needs to provide evidence in form of invoices and other documents showing that it indeed purchased the cartel-affected goods. And that's often, in, in many cases, it's really a complex exercise. Second, as Dieter already mentioned, the issue of damage calculation is highly complex. You need an economic expert. The defendant will have an economic expert. And then at some point in time, the court may want to decide to hire an own expert, which is essentially 
acting as a kind of referee on which expert of either side is going to be more persuasive. So these kind of cases are complex. The proceeding, the legal submissions are pretty long, can be anything between 50 and 300 pages. This is significant work. The stakes are high. There are many unresolved legal issues that will hopefully be addressed by the German Federal Supreme Court in the next 10 years or so. Mm. But right now, it is really a lengthy and, and costly exercise. Yeah, costly, complicated, like you said, lengthy, likely expensive, all that. So interesting area of the law, that's for certain. Dieter, you talked about damages briefly before, but give us an overview. Can you talk about the extent of damages, how they're typically calculated, or, or, or what someone should watch for if they're in this sort of situation? That is a very difficult one because, in fact, there is hardly any legal guidance by published court decisions. The fact of the matter is that there are, in fact, less than a handful of cases in Germany where, which maybe give an indication about specific damages. And the reason is, again, that at the end of the day, sooner or later in the process, many of these cases or most of these cases are likely to be settled. Settled, yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to avoid negative precedents from the respondent side. And on the other hand, if uh, the claims may fail on other legal grounds, as I have made already an example for, then obviously you also don't have an indication in the decision as to the damage calculation. So you do not find uh, this type of published decisions in Germany. But one thing can be said. And that is that the interest claims on cartel damages in Germany uh -huh. are playing an important role as well because these cases usually address a, a long duration mm -hmm. of more than 10 years of, of cartel duration. And that means interest becomes a relevant factor and this interest is calculated in Germany based on a statutory interest rate of 5% or to be more precisely 5% above the general interest rate of the European Central Bank. Okay. And therefore, the interest claims have a relevant role in the overall damage calculation, in particular also bearing in mind that in real time we don't know much of interest anymore as consumers. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And the rates are near zero. But that is interesting, though, because as these cases move on, as you said, they can go on very long. 5% is no small amount of money when you're talking about the kinds of awards or damages or the settlement, however it's worked out. So that's quite a factor. Jürgen, I had a note to myself about the importance of evidence in these cases, and you talked about it a second ago. You said receipts, proof that a consumer had purchased this or been damaged somehow. Talk about the importance of evidence in these cases at a high level. The German courts have been, that this has become apparent over the last couple of years, they are very restrictive. Um, they require essentially the presentation of invoices for the purchase goods on which the damage claims are based. And that is often really a significant burden for any potential plaintiff simply because you may not have access to these invoices any longer. Right. Even determining the amount of price that you have paid may constitute a challenge, in particular if you have complex pricing arrangements, uh. if you have complicated rebate schemes that cover 
a long term supply agreement where you have annual rebates or you have special rebates and stuff like that and and all of these kind of cases make raising a damage claim pretty complicated and then again with respect to the amount of damages everything boils down to expert opinions it has turned out that there are significantly less economic experts than there are lawyers as a result in many cases in which a number of plaintiffs have filed cases against defendants they have had difficulties identifying suitable economic experts because experts were already working for somebody else or even working on the other side so that often constitutes a significant challenge all right we've talked about the process we've talked about the likelihood of a settlement we've talked about uh, how complex these matters are there are a couple of things I want to make sure we talked on because I think they're very relevant here. In researching this and getting ready for this program, I saw the term umbrella losses used in this context. Talk about what that means. I'll, umbrella I'll... losses are relevant in the following scenario. Let's assume that we have a cartel that agrees to raise prices. And members of the cartel, however, they only account for, let's say, roughly 80% of the total market participants. In such a situation, economic experts are likely to argue that these cartel members accounting for 80% of the market are nevertheless able to raise prices above the competitive level, with a result that a victim that buys the cartel-affected goods not only from the cartel, but also from the outsiders of the cartel, will likely pay higher prices than normal, both with respect to goods purchased from cartel members as well as goods purchased from the outsiders of the cartel. And these second type of losses, they are called umbrella losses. Mm -hmm. For umbrella losses, it also can be said that they play you know, a much more important role in textbooks, legal textbooks, than in reality. And that is mainly due to the fact that they are extremely difficult to prove. I see. Uh, German courts have held that they recognize, in, in principle, the possibility of umbrella losses. But again, as I said, showing that, that there have been indeed such losses is often extremely tricky. D difficult to prove. I see. I see. All right, let's wrap it up with this. And I'm going to go to Dieter first, but you're going to like you to, to weigh in also. What do we haven't talked about? What do clients need to know or understand about these cases in Germany that we may not have covered? Do you have a, a takeaway for us, Dieter? Let's look shortly at the big picture of these cases. These cases are part of an ongoing legal development, which has become clear throughout this podcast. Uh, many issues are still in the process, and we are waiting for a settlement by the highest courts in Germany. Notwithstanding the fact that the infringement of the competition laws is already established with binding effect by the cartel authority decisions, these cases are still full of legal and factual issues of complex nature which need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the proceedings have a long duration. On the other hand, these are generally very high-value, high-stake cases, and for high-stake cases, you would expect also to have complex cases. Sure. sure. In any case, we have specialized and very qualified courts in Germany for these cases. We also have a suitable and flexible procedural litigation framework in Germany. 
And this applies notwithstanding the fact that we do not know the large discovery or disclosure exercises in our litigation framework. We have other instruments in our litigation rules. And therefore, overall, you can say that the German courts produce good results at appropriate costs in these cases. Mm-hmm. I would therefore conclude that Germany is in fact well placed as a appropriate jurisdiction for handling this type of cases and this applies not only for claimants but also for respondents in fact. Okay, interesting. Jürgen, anything you'd add to that or any other thing you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think it's important to take into account the different perspectives here. If you needed to figure out that some of your employees were involved in an illegal cartel, It is important from day one that you prepare for litigation, not only litigation in Germany, but litigation these days across the world, and to take every step in the proceeding of the Bundeskartellamt or the European Commission or of any other competition authority that may be responsible with the future litigation in mind. That is really that's absolutely crucial because you can make big mistakes at the very beginning, which will increase the costs of the entire exercise for your company significantly. If you are on the victim side, if you find out that you may have purchased goods that have been affected by a cartel, mm-hmm. then evidence preservation is key. So it's really important that you do your homework from the very beginning, that you carefully assess which products you purchase at which prices at which point in time, and that you preserve this evidence and then discuss with your legal counsel, you know, what might be the best option for you to proceed to assess the validity of your claim and then, of course, to decide on how to proceed. Very good. An astoundingly complex area of the law. Hey, this was great. I appreciate your both being today. These cases are lengthy, complex, but again, it's an area of the law that seems to be evolving. We'd like to have you again sometime is uh, circumstances and events warrant. But this was great today. Thank you so much for being here, Jürgen, Dieter. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, we'll talk soon. Okay, a short programming note. This was the second in a series of Jones Day Talks podcast programs focusing on private antitrust litigation throughout Europe. So please watch for more programming in the months ahead. We also plan a podcast focusing on private antitrust litigation in the United States after we complete the series on the situation in Europe. That U.S. podcast is likely to post in June 2021 and then will be followed by a global roundtable discussion featuring our lawyers discussing private antitrust litigation sometime in July. That's a lot of information coming from our global cross-practice private antitrust litigation working group, and we look forward to bringing you that content. For more information on Jones Day's antitrust and competition law and global disputes practices, visit jonesday.com. There you can also find complete bios and contact information for Jürgen and Dieter. And while you're visiting us online, be sure to check out our insights page. There you'll find alerts, commentaries, white papers, videos, more podcasts, newsletters, blogs, and other useful content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts and wherever else quality podcasts are found. And as always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. 
The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.